All right. Hey, everybody. Harry here. Welcome to another episode of The Unstarving Artist. So glad that you're here. If you're just joining us for the first time, these episodes are all about tips and tricks on how you can become a more successful artist in your day-to-day and also aiming for us to build a community of like-minded artists who are all positive, supportive, self-starting, moving in the same direction to help each other grow and have more success in areas that we care about. If you're just joining us, you can like and subscribe on YouTube. That will get more attention on what we're doing in the algorithm. More artists can see it, more people will benefit. So if you like to watch this, if you like to watch the videos, head over to YouTube and take a look there and you'll be notified every time we come out with a new episode. We also release this as a podcast. So if you like listening on Apple or Spotify, you name it, you can follow us there as well. Let's jump in right away. So first off, today is Memorial Day in the US. Happy Memorial Day for those who are able to get some time off, spend some time with friends and family. Hope you're having a great weekend. And the reason, uh, an additional reason I wanted to call that out is just thinking about, it made me think about how one way of looking at art is art is a way to memorialize people, places, thoughts, feelings, moments in history. And so if you are an artist and you're thinking about Memorial Day weekend, take this as a moment to reflect on what you're doing in your art practice, what you've been creating art around. If you create art without any thought to this extra element of things, if you don't have any focus on the meaning or the what you're trying to capture in the piece, take a moment to think about that and see if there's anything you can reflect on. You can maybe incorporate that into your art practice. What I found in my experience is that a lot of times artists and non-artists or fans or prospective collectors, we often view art very differently. As an artist, you can engage with your art and your art practice just on the level of the aesthetics, on the technical craftsmanship of what you're doing. It was funny, the other day I was working with an artist and we were using one of the AI chat tools to ask it some questions about how to make art. And we were specifically asking how to make nice rolling waves with white foam on them and all that. And it gave this very technical step-by-step detail about how to create that effect in oil paintings, about how if you have the sea, you want the color of the sea to be darker farther out and lighter coming in, and then how to create that sort of white cap dynamic. And understandably, with any sort of craft like art, if you understand things at that level and the mechanics of what to do to create certain effects, it's easy for us to focus on that and uh, really pay a lot of attention to it when we're interacting with art and engaging with art. But on the flip side, as non-artists like myself, other fans, people that you want to attract as prospective collectors, if they don't know that level of detail, if they're not into the craftsmanship of the art, the way that they connect with art is through meaning, through the way that it commemorates or celebrates something in the human experience. It doesn't have to be a representation, right? It doesn't have to be representational art. It doesn't have to be actually a clear subject matter of a person or a place or a thing. But oftentimes, even if it's abstract, there's some sort of deeper meaning. Maybe it's about some sort of thought or emotion or moment in time when you were creating it that was going on in your head. And so, yeah, I would just encourage you to really try to tap into and reflect on that dimension of things. Because the more you can speak to a human desire or cause or topic that people really care about that transcends the aesthetics, that transcends the art itself, the more you're going to be able to resonate with people on the wavelength that 
they're going to be on much. There's a much smaller pool of people that can appreciate and speak to you on your wavelength about the technical details of making the art. And so the more you can meet people where they're at and talk to them about these sort of human narratives, you're going to see a big difference in how people respond to you and what you're doing. Next thing I want to talk about briefly is this idea of do things that don't scale. Do things that don't scale. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't, but it's an idea that comes from business and it's that when you're starting a new business, a new project, a lot of times there's this tendency or desire to do things that are bulletproof, that are fully scalable, that are as efficient as possible. Like we don't want to do anything manually. We want to streamline things from day one. But what some of the greatest companies have done, greatest businesses have done, is they've actually done things that don't scale at the beginning because they recognize that they want to be able to connect one-on-one with their prospective customers and understand them better. And if you race to optimizing things, you race to quote-unquote scaling things, you lose that connection, you lose that relationship. It's harder to understand what resonates with people and what doesn't in what you're doing. And yeah, there's we have this such a desire. A lot of people come to me and they want to automate things. They want to make money when they sleep, so to speak. Maybe have a website that does all the selling for them. That has they they want to go right away into print because they know if they sell prints, they don't have to make more art. They can just sell the same thing over and over again. And think about that in your own practice right now. Are there areas where you are racing to scale, racing to automate, racing to delegate, and it's not working? Maybe it's just, yeah, just you're not getting the results. Things are fizzling out. Whenever you find that's happening, that's usually a sign that you are jumping ahead and you need to do things a bit more manually for a while before you're ready for that phase. A much better way to scale is to do things as manually as possible with a focus on that relationship, focus on those customers and go as far as you can until it's really starting to break. You'll know when it's breaking, when you feel you have all these relationships, you have all these people that want to engage with you, that they want your time, they want your attention and you can't handle it. That's when you can introduce either technology or team members or something like that to help you scale to the next level. And so just keep that in mind. If we do it that way, whenever you introduce like technology or new tools, whether it's a website or a form or a checkout flow, those will always convert less well than one-on-one manually interacting with people. So if you cannot convert people, if you cannot make sales one-on-one, adding some sort of technology like a website or prints or you name it, it's not going to solve your problems. It's going to just mask your problems and make it harder for you to see why things aren't working. Okay. And this also comes into the idea of income, different types of income. A lot of people out there, if you're new to business, you're hungry to make more sales, maybe you've heard this idea of what's called passive income. And part of what is really appealing to you, you're looking for is this idea of making passive income. I know when I first started out in my career as an entrepreneur, yeah, the idea of making passive income, making money while you sleep or while you're not actually working, it's very enticing. It's very attractive. And as I've gotten further along in my career, I recognize that the way that I thought about that and I thought that was a possibility when I was new has changed and evolved and matured over time. So what I've come to realize is that there is more of an, a spectrum to types of income that's more passive and more active. And what you find is that 
there are certain income opportunities where you have to put in a lot of work or more work upfront. And then once you put in that upfront work, then you get to benefit from income coming in in a second phase. So there's ways where basically the income you make is less and less tied to an hour of your time. You're not trading dollars for hours. So there is that spectrum. And, but even if you have income opportunities on the passive side, what I found in my experience is that there really isn't something that's 100% passive. Think about the most passive thing that you might have considered investing in the stock market. I can guarantee you if you put $10,000 in the stock market and you don't pay attention to it and you're putting it into specific names of companies, eventually you might lose money. There's a real risk to that. So even something that you think is set and forget, you still need to monitor it. You still need to manage it. Real estate, for example, is another kind of considered passive income. But if you own some rental properties, they're breaking down, tenants have issues, you have to make sure the tenants are paying. There's always some element of work involved in, in any sort of income opportunity on this spectrum. Now, if you have a certain scale, then you can hire people and delegate them to do some of these tasks, but then your work becomes making sure that they're doing the tasks and managing them, so on and so forth. So what's my point of bringing this up? I think this comes to back to that idea of doing things that don't scale. If you want to have scalable income, you can get there. But if you are telling yourself, I will only make money from my art if it's scalable, if it's passive, and you chase that from day one, you're more than likely going to prevent yourself from making any income at all. I'd much, I, I, you'll have a much better success if you are okay with, hey, putting in some work, putting in some hours, doing work up front, and know that over time, each sale is going to get easier and easier. Each sale is going to get more passive and more streamlined for you. And you will go through different phases of your business. You have the same art practice, but you'll go through different phases where you switch sort of your business models to become more scalable over time as you validate what you're doing. Okay, so don't shy away from doing active income, whether that's doing outreach to generate leads, whether it's doing commissions, whether it's selling originals, you name it. You have to go through different phases. And if you can basically establish a market for your originals and commissions, then that's going to create demand for your prints and so on and so forth. But if you start right away with prints, and you don't have any other sales. There's no market for it. So you can't really justify. It's much harder to justify a higher price point for those prints and those scalable opportunities. Okay. So with this, it really comes to our sort of overarching thesis behind our approach to helping artists. If you're not familiar with it, if you haven't heard this before, let me just briefly share how we approach helping artists make their sales. In my experience, if you want to start an art business, there's three things that you need in order to have success. And this is the simplest things that you need. No fanciness or fads or trends. It's just really break things down to their essence. You need what I call a profitable art offer a predictable source of leads, and a repeatable sales process. So for those who don't know what those things are, let's take them step by step. First, a profitable art offer. An offer is basically how you package and position what you're selling. It's how you describe and articulate what you're selling. And if you've never thought about it in these terms, basically you can take one thing, let's say you've got this amazing painting that you've made. How you package and position it with words, not like with physical packaging, but with words, how you frame it can affect the perceived value in very dramatic ways. So that same work of art, if you package it the right way, it will sell for 
$1,000 or more versus $100 or less. So that's the first thing is basically picking out how we package and position your art in, an, in what we call an offer. And you need one of them. So a lot of times I see artists come in and they have almost a, for lack of a better metaphor, like a McDonald's menu. They've got all these different items, so many different choices, different price points. Maybe they're charging per square inch or maybe they work in different mediums and they charge in different ways. It's just really confusing and it's all over the place and they compete with themselves because they have too many choices and they have really low price choices as well. So people pick out those low prices instead of going for a nice profitable rate. It's counterintuitive, but instead of doing that, consider having one price point that you're focusing on. It doesn't mean that you have to throw away or burn up all the other art that doesn't fit within this price point, but just picking out one price point to start that's $1,000 or more, think, all right, given I want to charge $1,000, what section of my work can justify that price point? Or $2,000 or $3,000, whatever it might be. Pick out a nice, healthy price point and focus on selling that. And don't have any sort of lower prices to compete with yourself or undercut yourself accidentally. That's the first thing. And you might, if you switch to this, let's say in the past you maybe sold 10 items at $100. And, but of those 10 people that bought at $100, maybe three would buy at 1000 or two would buy at 1000 Let's say just two would buy at a thousand. Now all of a sudden you've doubled your income, even though you've only made two sales instead of 10 sales. So you might get, you might hear eight no's, get two yeses, and you're going to make more sales as a part of this process. I think a big reason why a lot of artists struggle to do this is because they're afraid of rejection. Like they'd rather hear yes every single time if it, for their ego and for their psychology, which is totally human and normal. And they rather basically prioritize their feelings over making more money. And they've probably never examined this. They've never thought about it. But if you actually think about it and steal yourself and build some resiliency and know that, all right, I'm going to hear eight no's, but I'm going to get two yeses at a higher rate, you can build a thick skin. You can build some re some resiliency to that. And then you're really off to the races and you're making a lot more income from what you're doing. So that's going to be step one is a profitable art offer. You just need one profitable price point. You don't need a fancy, complex art business where you've got all these different products at different price points. So simplify that down. Next, you need a predictable source of leads. So a lead is somebody who's open and interested in working with you. And then a when we say predictable, we mean that there's a clear cause and effect relationship between the number of people that you're talking to, between the number of people that are in your audience you're interacting with and the number of people you're talking to and you're having conversations with that are open to working with you. When it comes to a predictable source of leads, a lot of times the biggest limiting belief and mistake people have is they think that there is some hidden source of leads out there that they need to get access to. If they can just get the right gallery to represent them, if they can just get the right connected person who has a bunch of rich, wealthy friends, then all of their lead generation problems will be solved because they've gotten access to this hidden pool of good leads. And if they can just talk to them and show them their work, they're going to, of course, buy it. This isn't a very helpful mental model. It's not an accurate mental model either. A much better mental model is to think about it like this. Leads are not found, they are made. I'll repeat that again. Leads are not found, they are made. So if you don't have a predictable source of leads, it's not that you're not connected to the right person. It's not that you 
don't have the right pedigree or the right art degree. It's none of that. It's that you haven't created the conditions to generate those sort of leads, to create the, those leads around you. So rather than thinking there's some sort of fixed pie of art collectors, fixed sum of art collectors, recognize that you can actually grow an audience around you and what you're doing and turn more and more of those people into leads for you. Most of the artists that I work with, most of their collectors, they don't identify as collectors. They don't even identify as art people. What happens is that they get to know and trust a specific artist. They like that artist's personality. They like what they're about and they become a fan of them. And then as a result, they're open to buying their art, even if they've never bought original art before. Does that make sense? I know that's a little bit abstract. Let me know in the comments if this makes sense or if you guys have any questions about what I'm going through. I want to hear from you. I want your feedback. I want to know what, what you want me to talk more about in the future. So that's phase two is a predictable source of leads. And so when you recognize that leads are not found, they're made, you realize that there's not some secret source. It's not like one social media platform like TikTok or Pinterest or Facebook is like the end-all be-all. It's more about learning how to create content, grow an audience on one of these platforms to connect with people and then draw them in as collectors. Okay? So don't think that there's some sort of secret tech hack or only one place works. A lot of artists these days are really interested in Instagram, which is why I focus on Instagram because I want to meet you all where you're at. And if you all are all thinking Instagram is the place to be, it's the place you have to be as an artist, then, then I'll meet you there and I'm going to help you with that. But the truth is everything that I teach around Instagram about creating content, about interacting with people, about generating leads, I have artists that use it on LinkedIn, who use it on Facebook. It's really agnostic to the platform. It's much more about the psychology of how do you build relationships with people? How do you connect with people? How do you build rapport with them? And do that again in a way that's more manual at first, right? Remember, do things that don't scale. But once you learn how to do things more manually, then you can actually take that same skill and create one-to-many content that resonates with people and draws them in, okay? So that's phase two is a predictable source of leads. And the simplest predictable source of leads to start out is basically going out there one-on-one, building relationships with people. And you can do that offline in your local area. It's just a little bit slower because there's not that many opportunities or it's harder to find opportunities where you can interact with a lot of strangers in a quick rapid fire way. There's festivals and fairs and things like that in your area. Those can be great. But contrast that to a tool like Instagram. With Instagram, it's like a 24-7 art fair networking event that's happening all day, every day. And you just have to go out there, reach out to people, and then connect with them on the platform and then in DMs with them. So if you can learn how to DM with people, build rapport, build new connections, build new friendships, you can take total ice cold strangers and get them to really be a fan of yours, a champion of yours, and be open to getting on a call with you and learning more about you and what you're doing. Okay, so that's the, it's not as scalable as other ways of doing things, but it's the fastest way to vet your skills and learn how to communicate with people and learn how to create leads and build that predictability that you're looking for. And then the third final piece is a repeatable sales process. All sales process is, is just having an intentional, thoughtful way to have conversations with prospective collectors that maximizes the chance that they want to say, that they say yes, and they want to work with you. Another way people describe sales processes is they say it's a conversion mechanism, right? You need a source of traffic or a source of leads. And then you need a way to convert those leads into customers. 
And so if you're more familiar with an e-commerce process where you have an e-commerce website or an art storefront or a shop, their sales process is, it's still a sales process. It's just a conversion mechanism on the website where there's not a human being talking, right? In my experience, if you're selling something for $1,000 or more, people want to have that relationship. They want to really feel like they can trust you. And it's very hard. It's not impossible, but you need a ton of rapport. You need to be really good at building up a nice audience and really have people connect with you for them to put like a $1,000 product in a cart and check out without talking to you. If we want to sell things at those higher prices, we need to have actual conversations with them. And so what I found is basically you can offer what's called a studio tour. A studio tour is basically this intentional, thoughtful conversation that where you are, are putting your best foot forward and looking to make a sale if the person resonates with you and what you're doing. A lot of artists that I work with, if they have people that are interested, if they are asking about pricing and showing the work, they just wing it. They don't really have a repeatable process. They will share pricing in Messenger or via text message and then people ghost them or they make up pricing on the spot. It's all very chaotic and it doesn't have to be super formulaic, but if you can just really systemize it, it's going to be a night and day difference because you really need to understand what you're saying or not saying, what you're doing or not doing and how that's affecting whether people say yes. And if you can be a little bit more consistent, a little bit more repeatable, then, you know, over five interactions, 10 interactions, you can see what's working. You can try to test something and you just get better and better. And the next thing, three out of 10 people, four out of 10 people, five out of 10 people are saying yes to working with you and they're doing it at much higher prices than would have been beforehand. Okay. So that's it really at the end of the day, if you want to have a art business, you just need three things. You need a profitable art offer, a predictable source of leads, and a repeatable sales process. Now, if that if it's so simple, why don't why aren't there like millions and millions of successful artists out there right now? It's because we have a tendency to overcomplicate things or oversimplify things. On the overcomplication side, we are just not disciplined. We will see shiny objects, we'll see some new thing. And we'll say, oh my gosh, NFTs look like this way that I can make a lot of money quickly. Or I need to set up a print-on-demand store. Look how much money this person's making. It's really fast and easy. And we flit around from different opportunities to opportunities. And we don't really go deep enough into the details on that one thing to make it work. So I'm not going to say that my way of doing things, my method is the only way and no other way it works because there are multiple ways of doing things. But the number one thing I think that people struggle with is that they don't go deep enough into their chosen method to really make it work. When, the, when something doesn't work right away, instead of interrogating that and going into the details and lifting up the hood and tuning the engine and making tweaks, we, for some reason, we don't really reflect at that level. We just discard it and we say, it's not going to work for me. It doesn't work for me. I've seen that happen. I've seen artists go on Instagram and they're like, oh, Instagram's not going to work for me. I got to be on LinkedIn or I got to be on TikTok or whatever it might be. And you might, there might be gradations where it might be a little bit easier, a little bit harder, different platforms, but they are all roughly the same. And it's so much better to just build that attitude, build that mindset of, no, I can make this work. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to crack this first and get it to work. And then I can test out another channel or test out another tool or something and see if it's better. And I can swap it out. I can replace it. But basically like flitting from one thing to another before you actually can see that it works or spreading yourself too thin. These are issues that people struggle with, which is a big reason why there's not as many artists having as much success as they'd like. The other thing, reason why is, okay, if they do go deep into one, one area and really focus, 
they don't have the mental model to be able to basically diagnose accurately what's working and what's not working. They can't troubleshoot their issues correctly. And I don't fault them for that. It's, it's not really taught. It's not really something that we're, we're taught in general school or in specific art school or anything like that. So if that's you, it's a, don't beat yourself up. It's just try to cultivate awareness. Like the way to learn that is on the job, so to speak. It's like the more you basically practice troubleshooting your issues, reflecting, diagnosing, it's like a muscle. It gets stronger and it takes less time and less time over time to accurately diagnose your issue, accurately propose good high changes, and then see that those changes actually bear fruit and get you the improved results you're looking for. That sort of iterative process of looping through that, it's not a very sexy thing. <laughs> it is as somebody who's gone through countless loops like that in my own business. Yeah, it's not glamorous at all, but that's the key to unlocking more growth, more success, more progress in what you're doing. So you have to figure out a way to develop that grit, develop that determination, develop that discipline to keep going through those loops, figure out a way to relate to that project, look at it as fun, find the enjoyment in it, find the fulfillment in it, and then you'll be able to stick with that and go through it. So if just as I'm talking out loud and thinking through this with you, yeah, I would say those are the two big things. It's either spreading yourself too thin and trying too much stuff and giving up too soon, or yeah, not having the discipline to keep going and just iterate and try and test things and develop a nice, clear, mental, accurate mental model about what works and what doesn't when it comes to marketing and selling your work. Okay? So on this subject of like having a sales process and interacting with collectors and bringing them in, I think what you'll realize is it's a different tone. It's a different mindset about these things. A lot of the artists that are coming in and work with me, maybe where you're at right now, it's like you have, they have this sense of almost the world is happening to them. If leads come into their life, the lead will want to buy the art or not based on the art. And it's just out of their hands. But what I hope you're seeing through the way I'm talking about it is that actually there's so much agency and so much power that you have if you just start to cultivate awareness around it, if you start to look at the world in that way, and there's you have a lot of influence over whether you get leads or not, whether you get sales or not. And so a classic way that this is manifests when people are first learning how to talk to collectors and have these conversations is when they don't feel like they have a strong sense of agency, they don't have a strong, what's called locus of control in psychology. Instead of actually leading the process and moving the process in the direction they want, they are sitting back and they're asking permission. We talked about this in the last episode, don't ask for permission beg for forgiveness. So I'm talking about that again, but it's a slightly different angle. It's more when you're interacting with people, prospective collectors, don't ask them for permission to do this, to do that, so on and so forth. Lead them, lead the process, use your agency to move things in a direction that's good for you and good for them as well. And you're going to realize if you think about it, like if somebody's expressed some interest in you and what you're doing in your art, they're not going to be the expert. They don't know as much as you do. They are actually subconsciously or consciously, they're looking for you to lead them, to guide them through the process. They make a good decision. They don't want to look foolish. They don't want to make a mistake. Maybe they've never bought art before. They're thinking, am I really somebody who buys art? If you can lead them and build that rapport and comfort them and guide them through the process, you can actually build the trust and get them comfortable working with you. So there's different metaphors for sales, but the ideal sort of persona you want to have as you grow as an artist and as somebody who sells your own work is as a trusted counselor, the top salespeople in any profession, in any industry, 
they are looked at as trusted counselors because their clients, the people that work with them, know that they can trust them and then they get good advice from them. So if they're not a fit for what they have to offer, what they're selling, the salesperson will be honest about that because they want to play the long game. They care about the relationship and they want to be looked at as somebody with a good reputation who's trusted. Okay. So if you can cultivate that attitude, that energy of being a trusted counselor in your relationships with people, it's going to help you a lot, have more people reciprocate and invest in working with you. Um, another way of looking at this is like when you're asking people permission, you're saying you're inviting them to really lead instead of you leading. And it's an abdication of responsibility. And so if you are in that habit of doing that, don't be surprised if people don't move forward or if they think your work is too expensive. If you're asking for $1,000 for a commission, but the other person feels like they have to lead and they have to draw out from you and they have to be the one that practically makes sure that the that they're going to be happy with the final outcome, they're not going to say yes, right? Because it's like, why, they're basically like paying you for them to do a job, right? They're going to be the one that has to like proactively do all this work. But the more that you can lead in your communication and make them feel like, wow, like everything is going to be taken care of. Um, it's all going to be smooth. I'm in good hands. I'm in hands I can trust. You take on that responsibility, right? If leading through the process, you're going to see more and more people saying yes to working with you. All right. So that's it for the most part in today's episode. I hope this has been helpful. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you want me to talk about more topics in depth, whether it's topics related to kind of strategy or specific tactics, you name it, let me know. And on that subject, I was looking at some of the artists that were engaging with this content on different platforms. If you're enjoying this, definitely like the content, comment on the content. I want to hear from you. But I think it'd be really fun if I did some artist marketing critiques, uh, basically looking at the online presence of different artists and give them feedback on what they're doing well, what I think they can improve, what they could change if they want to make more sales, if they want to attract more people and grow their audiences. So if you're interested in that, definitely comment on this video. Let me know so that I can have a short list of people that I can give feedback on. I don't know what that series will look like, but I want to play around with that and see if people like that sort of content. And, and we'll go from there. Okay. So again, this video, subscribe on YouTube, hit that notification bell on YouTube. We want to get as many artists hearing this so we can benefit more people and help more people. Okay. If you also like this on podcasts, follow us on Spotify, follow us on um, Apple Podcasts. All right. That's going to be really helpful so you can get notified whenever these come out. And then last but not least, I'm so excited. I recently put together a book on all of our methods that goes through our process of helping artists. So if you are on the fence about working with us, you've thought about working with us in the past, but maybe it was not as accessible as you'd like, the book is just $3. You can grab the copy of the book, read that, and really implement as much as you'd like on your own. I want to help you through that, okay? Take a look at the book. I'll put a link to the book in the notes below this episode, but really grab a copy. We've had over 50 people buy the book so far. In the last couple of days, I've been blown away with the response. People are absolutely loving it. So you're going to get a ton of value out of that. So definitely pick up a copy of that. And, and again, let me know your feedback, your thoughts on that. Okay. So thanks so much. And I'll see you in the next episode.